Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, ETSU's Bill Cad College of Pharmacy. Uh, it's the uh, first week of April, 2023. Um, just got back from uh, Hopa over the weekend, um, and and really loved uh, talking to so many of you who who said so many nice things about enjoying the podcast and. Uh, and to keep up the good work, uh, it was wonderful to hear and, and reigniting. Uh, it was great to, to put some names with some faces uh, from folks who, who I've interacted with on social media uh, and talk to them. Um, and then if you are um, an avid listener of the podcast, you probably heard last week something that sounded a little bit different, which was uh, I, um, the second podcast I ever did called Tales of Brave Aressa. Uh, and since I've been doing this uh, for for more than five years, if you're, uh, you know, started listening one to two years ago, you know, we, you would be, you know, probably didn't go back and listen to every single thing, maybe. So I wanted to re-release that one because I think it gave a a, a nice historical perspective of how EGFR inhibitors got to where they are in, in non-small cell lung cancer, uh, and that uh, sometimes things. Um, drugs or drug classes take a while to find their best place in therapy, and that certainly was the case with that uh, with that class of drugs. But it was the early days of the podcast. wasn't quite sure what I was doing. Didn't know how to end, you know, the 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 podcast. So, um, uh, if if you were wondering what that was, that's what that was. I was at Hopa and, and could not record a podcast, so uh, thought I'd shine a light on, on an oldie but goodie, as uh, as we like to say. Okay, but new stuff, so much new stuff. All right, so first I want to talk about uh, a randomized controlled clinical trial that uh, that I think we, we should should get more talk and and uh, than it than it does, uh, and I'll talk about why that is. It's a very simple study. It is a very easy question, and it has a lot of potential benefit. Actually, it has a, a great potential for benefit and very easy to implement. Uh, and this is a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial study of olanzapine for chemotherapy-related anorexia in patients with locally advanced metastatic gastric pancreatobiliary uh, and lung cancer. So this was conducted in uh, in India, and these were uh, newly diagnosed patients with, again, advanced gastric, uh, so HCC um, or uh, cholangio, lung cancer, uh, ECOG performance tests up to three, uh, and they uh, are randomized to either olanzapine 2.5 daily for 12 weeks or matching placement. So 2.5 daily is a very low dose. So the dose we use for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting is 5 to 10 milligrams on days 1, 2, 3, and 4. This is 2.5 every day. Um, these patients, uh, this was pretty small, um, so they're getting um, a little more than 60 in each group and a little more than 50 in either group where they're available for analysis. Uh, more than half the patients in the study did have gastric cancer, um, most were receiving palliative chemotherapy, um, and you know the vast majority were stage four disease uh, as well. Um, the primary endpoint here is a weight gain of more than five percent, uh, which uh, was somewhat selected because it is associated uh, with better outcomes in metastatic lung cancer. I think metastatic lung cancer patients. Now, if you know the chemo works and you feel better, you'll probably gain weight. So uh, just because you gain weight doesn't mean that, you know, the, the chemo will work better. Um, but anyway, so that's their primary endpoint and, and how they designed the study is to see, uh, you know, what proportion of patients 
more than 5% weight gain after 12 weeks. Now, this was in India, okay? And this is a, obviously different than, than my patient, um, the patients I treat. Uh, and if we look at uh, like our weight at baseline, it's, it's lower than the weight at baseline for our folks here. Uh, in uh, in East Tennessee, for example, but they you know they see um, the proportion of patients who had a five percent weight gain after twelve weeks, sixty percent with olanzapine versus nine percent uh, with placebo. You don't need to do a t test. You don't need any statistical analysis to know that's significant. Sixty percent versus nine percent increase in appetite based on a visual analog scale. Forty three percent versus thirteen uh, percent. I won't go through. Uh, you know, how much to eat, things like that. What is really interesting here is tolerance and of chemotherapy and safety. So um, the rates of chemotoxicity were 85 and 88% respectively, the same. The rate of grade three toxicity was 12% in the olanzapine arm and 37% with the, um, uh, with the placebo arm. So you might take away from the study that it made the chemo better tolerated. And it did. It didn't mean the chemo was less myelosuppressive or harder, but these big improvements were seen uh, with nausea and fatigue. Uh, and we know, and, and the associated weight gain that we see with olanzapine. So olanzapine has effects on histamine receptors, serotonin receptors, dopamine receptors in the brain. All drug classes are associated with increased in weight gain uh, and increase in appetite. And if you're going through cancer treatment and you feel like eating, you're probably gonna eat and feel happier because eating releases dopamine, makes us feel good when we eat certain foods. Um, there are also a, a number of patients in this study who were started at three quarter dose of their drug. Um, you know, and this is not an uncommon thing. Let's say you've got the ECOG2 patient and you're like, ah, oh, I don't know if I want to give, like, so K-Box was a really common regimen, Carbopem, those were the two most common regimens in the study. So let's say you were doing K-Box, and you're like, all right, I'm going to actually, instead of doing a gram per meter squared of, of capsaicin, I'm going to do 750, and instead of, instead of oxaliplatin, uh, 130, I'll do like I'll do like 85. I'll do the every two week dosing or something like that every three weeks or or you go from 85 to 60 if you're doing two week dosing of oxaliplatin. See how they do. Well, more of those patients in the olanzapine arm were able to to then ramp up to 100% uh, treatment um, of chemotherapy in those who received olanzapine. Again, the benefits came from better nausea control, not from chemo, but especially the, the gastric and the, and the pancreobiliary, these are cancers that cause nausea at baseline. Um, and if you're nauseated for two straight weeks, not just from the chemo, but from the underlying disease, you're probably not gonna tolerate chemo. Um, so really just, you know, you know the saying, uh, kiss, keep it simple, stupid? This is a keep it simple uh, paper. And that's not a, uh, I don't mean that to be uh, uh, a, a, any derogative at the investors. It's a wonderfully smart and simple study that um, by and large it has shown, um, you know, even though the primary endpoint was an increase in, in weight gain of more than 5%, it also improved over or improved quality of life. And that's, and that's the most important thing for these patients with advanced cancer that you can't cure is, is uh, you know, the chemo. We hope it can improve their their, uh, their number of months live, but we also want to make sure those months are as good as possible. So really wonderful study that uh, I see no reason not to widely implement, um, perhaps beyond just uh, those diseases. I could see this being extrapolated, say pancreatic cancer, uh, where patients similarly have a lot of baseline nausea uh, and trouble uh, with weight. Now, I am going to temper expectations a little bit with my favorite uh, 
two-page article ever to talk about, which is if you Google this from the New England Journal of Medicine, toxicity and chemotherapy when less is more. And this is talking about a basic lab experience where they took mice um, and they gave them chemo in a normal environment or an environment where they actually uh, were deprived of, of calories to some extent. And the rats or the mice, the animals that were calorically deprived when they received chemo, they actually had less toxicity on normal cells, so think less myelosuppression, but greater um, actually cancer kill when they were calorically uh, restricted. There is also the, the data from, uh, from advanced cancer back from, I think, the 80s, that if you gave folks hyperalimentation, you gave them TPN, total parental nutrition, thinking that by giving them more calories, they would do better with their treatment, and they didn't, and in some cases, they did worse. Um, and and we, we, you know, we pretty much know the reason people are anorexic when they have advanced cancer is that uh, the cancer is stealing all the good stuff from the body, and, uh, and, and, and the cancer is not as good at tolerating a low-calorie environment uh, than human cells. Um, so anyway, uh, I'll link to that. It's two pages. It's worth, it's worth reading, and it's really thought-provoking, uh, I think, as well. Okay, so... The next big paper I'm going to talk about, uh, which is going to change pra practice, is Pembro plus chemo in advanced endometrial cancer. This is keno, I don't know, keno endo is what they should call it. Um, I'm sure there's a fancy name for it. Oh, no, it's not because this was funded by NCI. This was funded by NCI. Uh, Merck also gave some money. So it's not a keynote study. Gosh. The, the, oh, the humanity. I can't believe I made that mistake. All right. So this is Pembro plus um, carboplatin paclitaxel in advanced endometrial cancer. Um, they are enrolling two cohorts here, mismatch repair proficient patients, um, and mismatch, which they are targeting almost 600 people, 500 people, and then mismatch repair deficient, and they're talking about 200 people in that study. We know the mismatch repair deficient patients do well with immune checkpoint inhibitors. That's already kind of standard of care for these folks. Um, uh, but for those who are mismatch repair proficient, the standard is still carbo- Paclitaxel, if they have um, serous histology and they're HER2 amplified, they're, uh, it's also recommended to give those folks trastuzumab. There's no mention in the protocol of testing for HER2 or how many people were HER2 amplified. So at the very end, they've got uh, you know just under 600 people with mismatch repair proficiency and just over 200 with mismatch repair deficiency. The authors do a good job presenting these results um, by both subgroups, which I think is important. I do want to point out in our baseline demographics that there are some differences we see here in, in, uh, in histology by mismatch repair status. So the mismatch repair proficient had a, a lower rate of endometrioid cancer, 52% endometrioid compared to 85% in the mismatch repair deficient, which means the mismatch repair proficient had a higher incidence of serous histology, which is a higher risk disease. Um, there appears to be no inclusion of carcinosarcoma, which is a high-grade uh, uterine neoplasm. Uh, it's not explicitly excluded, but if you look in the protocol, it's not listed in the inclusion criteria. And maybe I'm blank. Maybe I'm completely missing. There's another name for carcinosarcoma, but I, I don't think that's the case. I'm also going to point out, uh, and these are the main differences between the, the cohorts here, is that 95% of patients in the mismatch repair deficiency cohort were chemotherapy naive. That's only 75% in a mismatch repair proficient cohort. So you could not receive, this is first line treatment of advanced uh, endometrial cancer. 
but they could have received platinum-based chemo in the past as part of a neoadjuvant adjuvant treatment, but it had to have been at least 12 months since then. So they had to be, quote, platinum-sensitive, even though that's a term typically reserved for ovarian cancer, not endometrial cancer. But that means 25% of the folks in the proficient mismatch repair had received platinum of some kind, most likely, I'm assuming, because that's what they should have received anyway, in the past. And now we're going to treat them again with platinum paclitaxel, plus or minus Pembro. And while there's still some activity reserved because it's been more than 12 months, it's not going to be as robust as it otherwise would have been. It's not necessarily wrong to do that. That's what I would recommend. But um, the, the, the benefit is not going to be as much as someone receiving chemo for the very first time. So our primary endpoint here is progression-free survival. And I, this is a little disappointing for a, a, an NCI-funded study. Uh, in conjunction uh, with Merck. Um, so you do see a very, very large and obvious separation of our Kaplan-Meier curves in those who were mismatch repair deficient. Hazard ratio for progression or death, 0.3. Ah, closer to one, or sorry, closer to zero than closer to one, right? So that's how you know there's a large treatment effect. In our mismatch repair proficient uh, disease, we see a much less exaggerated separation of the curves, but a separation of the curves nonetheless and one that continues to grow uh, over time, although with not that many uh, followed after after a year. Um, so the median progression free survival for mismatch repair. Proficient is 0.5. So 0.5 in the proficient, 0.3 in the deficient for our point estimate. So you do see the magnitude of benefit is larger in the mismatch repair deficient cohort. I am grateful that we have two separate dedicated analyses and not like a lumped you, where they lump it all together, and because of the benefit in the mismatch repair deficient cohort, you say it's useful in all of them. Uh, we clearly see there's there's some benefit to both for progression-free survival, but the greatest benefit in the mismatch repair deficient uh, subgroup. From an overall survival standpoint, what we care most about, um, in the supplement, they do have the Kappa-Meyer curves presented without any formal statistical analysis. And for the mismatch repair proficient, the Katmire curves are almost superimposed. I, I don't think you're going to see an improved overall survival in that subgroup, even if it was powered to detect it. In those who are mismatch repair deficient, you know, you do start to see a separation and maybe even a plateau effect, which is really exciting uh, for advanced disease, actually. Um, so I, I do think that we'll see that uh, some overall survival in the mismatch repair deficient cohort with carboplatin, paclitaxel, and pembrolizumab up front. Uh, they gotta have a name for this regimen. It's gonna be so common everywhere. Oh, I want to point out this is paclitaxel 175 per meter squared and carboplatin AUC5. Very, very standard gynon dosing, but maybe a little bit lower dosing than what we would prefer, say, in a non-small cell lung cancer patient. Now, you can also see a little bit of the natural history of disease here uh, in our carbopaclitaxel curves. If you take out the Pembro. So there is a very, very steep decline pretty quickly in those that are mismatch repair deficient just receiving chemo, where half of them progress within six months. In our mismatch repair proficient, uh, in the you know 20% uh, have progressed within six months or died. So this mismatch repair deficient is a much more aggressive disease, and you certainly do see uh, and less resist more resistant to chemo. We clearly see the benefit of our immune checkpoint inhibitor there, which, uh, which we would have expected, okay? And there's really no, no new safety signals identified. That is not the case for our next uh, study we're gonna talk about, which is um, actually the FDA approval in the accelerate approval process of infortimab vidotin, PADSEV, plus pembrolizumab 
for advanced urothelial or bladder cancer in patients in the first-line setting who are ineligible for cisplatin-containing chemotherapy. Um, and why were they ineligible? I think in half the cases, uh, and this is in the, in the PI, 60% uh, their creatinine clearance was below 60, 10% had a performance status of 2, 13% had hearing loss, and 16% uh, had multiple uh, ineligibility criteria. Uh, an early um, publication of this, this is the EV103 uh, study, or Kino869. Uh, we've got an EV103, that's the Infortimabidotin name, Kino869 is the pembrolizumab name. Uh, each company had to get their name in there, right? Um, there's a publication in JCO of January of this year with about 45 patients. This approval is based off of an N of 161 with uh, a total response rate of 68%, 12% complete response rate, which is not nothing. It's not huge, but it, it is something. But what I do want to point out, here's the safety signal from this. So this is an accelerated approval. Um, uh, if you can't get cisplatin, but you are a candidate for carboplatin, that would be the comparison group that you want to see here. It would be like a carbogym regimen, perhaps, versus this for folks who can't get cisplatin. Um, so there are some notable toxicities of infortimab vidotin that we've learned over time, like the skin toxicity is more severe than we appreciate originally. We, there's some hyperglycemia, interstitial lung disease, peripheral neuropathy we would have expected. So for the skin, uh, the skin reactions, the ILD, and the peripheral neuropathy, we actually see more of that in combination with Pembro compared to the other cohorts of patients in the past who have received just infortimab bedotin. So infortimab bedotin monotherapy, skin reactions happen about 56% of patients, 12% at being grade three or four, which can be Stevens-Johnson's send you to the burn unit sort of reactions. When Pembro's added, that number is about 72%, one in five being grade three or four. Very, very scary side effect that would needs to become the focal point of counseling on this regimen with Pembro with Infortimab Vidotin. Interstitial lung disease goes from 2.9%, we think, to 9% with Pembro, 0.8% grade through 4, whether it's monotherapy or in conjunction with Pembro. Now, the peripheral neuropathy numbers are a bit puzzling. We know that the Vidotin, this uh, monomethylarostatin E, I think, um, this calicheomycin derivative, this microtubule poison causes peripheral neuropathy, just like anything that damages microtubules does. So infortimab vidotin by itself, about half have peripheral neuropathy. Grade three is, is less than 5%. When you add Pembro, that number sneaks up a little bit to 65%, but the grade three peripheral neuropathy is only 3%, okay? 53 versus 65 might not even be significant. This very well may be a, a manifestation of longer time on treatment, and the longer you're on, if you get three cycles of weekly paclitaxel, you're probably not gonna have peripheral neuropathy. You get 12 cycles of weekly paclitaxel, you're going to have more peripheral neuropathy, right? So because maybe they're on treatment longer with infortimab vidotin, because of the pembrolizumab being added, maybe a more effective regimen, that very well could explain that, that slightly higher rate of peripheral neuropathy. But certainly uh, a regimen with some toxicity uh, and another good treatment option is term, in terms of response rate. Anytime you're getting response rates um, north of 50%, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing uh, pretty robust clinical activity here. Um, love to know more about the 12% with a complete response and how durable that is. All right, that is the podcast for this week. Uh, I've got a fun little, uh, I don't know why I say fun little, it's a good uh, um, um, landmark of Oncofarm uh, ready in the hopper. Uh, um, but there might be, you know, there might be breaking news next week I have to talk about. So uh, always things to talk about here 
in the oncology pharmacy landscape. Uh, thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at PharmDetanib, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoPharmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.